So the story we've just heard is the kind of story that when you hear it, the first question you think is, wait a minute, how in the world did Joseph and Mary leave Jesus behind? They had one job. My uh, sister-in-law and her husband um, are a blended family. They had five children between them. And early on in the relationship, they uh, were eating out at a restaurant. They left the restaurant and left one of their children in the booth asleep. And the, they were halfway across the parking lot. The waiter came running out and said, you, you left a child asleep in the booth. You imagine going back in there and getting that child, everybody judging you? And some of you know Austin and Lena Sheets, who are part of ECC here. They have a lot of children. And one time I decided to ask Lena about that. And I said, hey, Lena, I have, a, I have a question for you. Can I ask you a question? She shot back, nine. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. Nine children, that's a lot of children to keep, uh, to keep uh, track of. I would imagine every once in a while you have to do a head count or something like that. Teachers probably know what that's like too. You go on field trips, you have to do a head count to make sure you've got all the kids. Reminds me of a scene from Home Alone where everyone in the extended family oversleeps the morning they're supposed to go to the airport and fly to Europe for a Christmas vacation and young Kevin McAllister is banished to the attic the night before. He gets left behind. Well, they too did a head count. But as they were doing so, a neighbor kid made his way into the group and got counted by accident. Just for fun, let's take a look. Come on, you guys. Line up and shut up. Shut up. I got to take a head count. One, two, three, four, five. Buzz, don't be a moron. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Something like that might have happened. There's a lot of people going to and from these festivals. Joseph and Mary headed back home from their pilgrimage for Passover. It could have happened. Plus, families very much extended families then. So back then, it was like everybody kind of took responsibility for everybody else's kids. It takes a village to raise a child. So Jesus' parents very well could have thought he was with cousins or friends and that sort of thing. What I want to focus on today, however, that question aside, is what Jesus was doing when they eventually found him in the temple. Now just before our passage, there is a clue to an important theme. Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple when he's a baby to have him presented to the Lord, to consecrate consecrate him as the firstborn according to Jewish law. We read in uh, Luke 2, verses 39 to 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And then jumping to the end of our passage this morning, verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This, This passage that we read is bracketed by these two statements. Jesus, the Son of God, grew. That's what human beings do, after all. We grow. This key, this is a key to the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus becoming one of us as a human being. The incarnation means that Jesus interacted with the world and with God as a human being. With all the limitations of human beings. 
Not as some kind of Superman who flew to earth and disguised himself as a human being, but as a human being. Now, lest I be misunderstood, Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And while we don't really understand how that works, what we do understand is what it means to be a human child because we've all been there. Humans don't come out of the womb self-aware. That takes growth and it takes time. Same is true for Jesus. He did not come out of the womb and on day two go, oh, I'm the son of God. He's a human child. He can't do that. He had to figure it out just like we have to figure things out. He grew in strength. He grew in wisdom. He learned. And then the text tells us that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But Joseph and Mary were unaware of it. Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and didn't tell his parents? Does that sound like any child you've ever known to do something and not ask permission? Is it wrong to say that Jesus was testing his limits with his parents in this scene? Isn't that a part of what it means for a human being to grow up? I know I'm messing with you. He was a remarkable 12-year-old boy, but he was a 12-year-old boy nonetheless. You can discuss that one over lunch. So about a day into the journey, back home, Joseph and Mary realize that Jesus is not with them. They head back to Jerusalem to go and look for him, verses 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is a solid five days by my poor math count. A day traveling home, a day traveling back, three years searching, five days. And when they find him in the temple, he's sitting among the teachers, he's listening to them, he's asking them questions. He's sitting, he's listening, he's asking And in the give and take take of the teaching and the listening and the asking question, it becomes obvious, apparently, to some of the teachers that this boy has something to say. And so apparently they begin to ask him questions, too, and they like his answers. Last week we began this first movement in our series looking at uh, passages of Scripture that echo Psalm 27, verse 4. And there... King David says that there's one thing he wants more than anything else. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. In this first movement we are in, we are asking, according to Scripture, what are some of the ways that we can dwell in the house of the Lord each day? Last week with Psalm 1, Uh, we learned that to dwell is to delight in and meditate on the Word of God, Scripture. It is to delight in and meditate on the Word of God. This week, as we meditate on 12-year-old Jesus dwelling in the temple for three to five days, what can we learn about our own dwelling? What, What did he do? And what can he teach us about ourselves and our own need to dwell there too? Let's break it down. Jesus sat... He listened, and he asked questions. And if Jesus had to sit and listen and ask questions, then you and I most certainly do. But to sit and to listen requires something of us, doesn't it? It requires silence to one degree or another. 
it requires that we stop talking and that we listen. Now maybe for some of you, listening to God is a, is a foreign idea or something you don't think you could do, or if you did do it, you wouldn't do it very well. Well, as I said last week, we can only be where we are when it comes to spiritual practices. We can only start from wherever we are. Learning to listen to God is a spiritual practice, and no one, not even people who've been doing it for decades, no one does it perfectly. As Kate Cogswell, who read our scripture earlier, said in her article a few weeks ago, spiritual practice takes practice, not perfection. Spiritual practice takes practice, not perfection. We'll come back to this idea in a few minutes, but let, let's read on. Twelve-year-old Jesus is in the temple. He's in the courts. He's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them. He's asking questions, and then we read this. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished, by the way, that, that he's in the temple, because <laughs> she still has questions for him. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Mary refers to Jesus, uh, to Joseph, as Jesus' father. Now, stay with me here. Is it possible that Mary and Joseph haven't yet told Jesus his origin story? I mean, he's still quite young. When do you tell a child that he's actually the son of God. None of the parenting books have a chapter on this. I checked. So as a thought experiment, as a thought experiment, what if, if Mary and, and Joseph have not yet told Jesus about his conception, his birth, the angel, the magi, the shepherds, and all of that, then maybe this scene is partly about Jesus beginning to figure things out on his own. Maybe this is one of the ways he was growing and learning. Maybe Mary's mention of Jesus' father prompts his own response. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Maybe Jesus takes Mary's word father and pivots it toward a deeper theological reality. God is his father, not Joseph. It's a thought experiment. We don't know. In some older translations, Jesus doesn't say, didn't, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? Well, here's a fun fact. Neither one of those words, house or business, are in the text. Nothing's there. It just kind of ends. More literally, Jesus says, didn't you know that I had to be about or in or with my father's? It just ends there with a possessive form of father's. Father's what? And so translators try to supply a word that Jesus might have intended. My father's house, my father's business, my father's concerns, my father's affairs, they all make sense. Whatever Jesus meant exactly, he is naming two realities. He understands God as his father, and he understands that his father God has the claim on his life and mission. He understands that God is his father, and he understands that God has the claim on his life and mission. And we need to understand these things about ourselves, too, in a different way than Jesus, but we still need to understand them. So Jesus models something for us here about what it means to be human and what it means to seek God. He sits. He listens. He questions. 
He wrestles with things, and we can too. This is a bit of a sidebar. It's not a short one, but it is a bit of a sidebar. Um, Over my years as a pastor, I've had many conversations with parents who are concerned about their children who are uh, turning away from God. Maybe they were raised in the church. Maybe at some point they claimed faith in God and faith in Christ. And now they're questioning. Now they're doubting. Now they're even rebelling against all of it. And my counsel to every single parent has always been something like, I know this is difficult, but the reality is your children are going to have to make their own way. They're going to have to find their own way into that faith. They can't just inherit yours. Later, when my own children began to doubt and question and rebel, I experienced this reality from a different point of view. My own counsel wasn't nearly as uh, encouraging to me and comforting as I hoped it would be for others. But it was still true. It was still true. My children, your children, every single human being must find our own way. And they need room to ask questions. And even to give their own answers as they're figuring all of it out. They need freedom to wrestle with things and freedom to doubt. For doubt is a part of faith. There were doubters present when Jesus ascended after his resurrection, before he ascends, before he gives a great commission in Matthew 28, we read this in verses 16 and 17. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Doubt is a part of the journey. Even some of Jesus' closest friends, closest followers, doubted. And yet, even in their doubt, they worshipped. Worship and doubt can coexist. Doubt does not exclude us from faith. There is room for this kind of wrestling and questioning. And if the disciples were free to doubt, even after seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ standing in front of them face to face, then there is room for our doubt and our questions and our wrestling too. And to be sure, there's several places in the New Testament that where doubt is at the very least frowned upon. And sometimes we need that warning too. There's a tension there. By comparison, however, however, we must um, also read one tiny little verse that I stumbled on a few weeks ago, which I am sure I've read before, but I have never noticed, or if I did, I totally forgot about it. It's in this obscure, small New Testament book called Jude. It's so small, it doesn't even have chapters. It just has verses. And there we get this pithy, powerful, perhaps surprising exhortation, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. There is room. There is even encouragement for those who doubt. Be merciful to them. Give them space to wrestle and question in doubt, do not chase them away. In these days, when I don't know if you hear a lot about it, but I do, we hear about a lot of people going through deconstruction. We need not run from that. We need to allow people to ask questions and to push against things. We need not chase people away. We need to be merciful to those who doubt. I have had doubts. And those doubts led me to a deeper truth, a deeper faith than I've ever known before in my life. They led me to a a greater experience of God and a 
a place where I saw God is far more big and beautiful and wonderful than I'd ever seen God before. Doubts are not bad in and of themselves. The problem comes when we as a congregation or we as a larger church do not steward well over those who doubt when we should be merciful to them instead. So if you doubt, if you're in this room, you're joining us online, you're hearing the sound of my voice later, if you doubt, we want to make room for you. I want to make room for you. We want to be merciful to you. Sidebar over. It was a long one, I know. Jesus, at 12 years old, models something we need to imitate. He sits and he listens. He asks questions. And eventually, he gives answers. He, he engages in dialogue and conversation. And the answers given by this 12-year-old boy, Luke says, are amazing. And this, too, is what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord, to sit, to listen, to question, to dialogue, even to debate. I don't, I don't think Jesus was doubting at 12 years old in the temple that day. But his approach to learning, his approach to growth, allow for doubt and struggle in our journeys of faith. Last week, uh, we learned that to dwell in the house of the Lord daily is to delight in and meditate on the word of God. This week, we can add a little bit more to that definition. To dwell is to listen to, to converse, and to wrestle with God. Wrestling with God may sound a bit strange to some of us, but the people of Israel get their very name from this idea of wrestling with God. It is an identifying trait for them in Scripture. In Genesis 32, Jacob is returning home from his self-imposed exile from his brother Esau. In preparing to meet Esau, he, Jacob sends his servants and his family ahead with all sorts of gifts to try to appease Esau while he, Jacob, stays behind. And then something really strange happens. Jacob finds himself wrestling with a man, and he wins. The man, as the story unfolds, turns out to be some kind of representation of God. For when Jacob asks this man for a blessing, almost if he's telling him, I'm not going to let you go until you scream, Uncle. When he, when he does that, this man asks Jacob his name and then changes Jacob's name. Verse 28 of Genesis 32. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, which by the way means deceiver, but your name will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. The name Israel means struggles or wrestles with God. And Jesus wrestles with God in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he is arrested and crucified. He prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And his sweat is falling like drops of blood on the ground. That's struggle with God. Same thing happens on the cross when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if Jesus can wrestle, if Jesus can struggle, so can we. That kind of wrestling speaks of intimacy and growth and relationship. It speaks of a safe place to wrestle and question. It speaks of discipleship and transformation. And if we are going to grow in Christ, if we are going to experience the abundant life Christ promises, our lives with God are going to also need to include sitting and listening and asking questions and wrestling and even doubting. 
So today I want to offer a spiritual practice for this kind of relationship with God. You can do this in a couple of ways. You can write a letter to God and then write a letter from God back to you in response to your letter. Some of you have probably done this before. You should do that prayerfully. Or you can write a conversation between you and God or you and Jesus. Don't don't worry about um, whether or not you're going to get it all theologically correct. Just kind of give yourself to the exercise, and you might be surprised at, at what you learn. I mean, it's not like you're publishing this, and you know, and everybody needs to read it. This is your own prayer and wrestling with God. Over the past uh, few years, I have done something like this several times, and I found it very helpful. I'll read a passage, I'll sit in silence for a few minutes, and write out a conversation between Jesus and me about that passage. I, I'll come back to that, what I've written in my journal, a few days later, a few weeks later, in some cases a year later, and I will read it, and I will be surprised at how God uses what I wrote down to speak to me. A while back, I read the story, which was referenced in the children's message, of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, and then I did that. I prayerfully wrote out a conversation. I sat for a while in silence and kind of just imagined the scene, read through the passage a few times, and then I wrote out a conversation between me and Jesus about that passage. And I'm going to read a portion of that conversation to you just so you can see kind of what I'm talking about. Me. It strikes me today, at least, that my temptations or testing are often so different than yours, Jesus. Mine seem much smaller to me, less weighty, and therefore easier to excuse or diminish. Jesus, how are your temptations smaller? Me. Well, they don't seem to carry the same potential consequences, and you've already forgiven me, so it's easy to minimize, which, if I think about it, is frightening. Jesus, how so? Me, if I excuse my own temptations or minimize them, it is so easy to deceive myself into thinking it's not a big deal. On one level, I think that's true, isn't it? The true big deal is that you have gone before me and passed the test on my behalf, and I can rest in that. On another level, while there is not much writing on my success or failure in terms of the impact on the world, it is a big deal in terms of the impact on my world. And in terms of my progress with you, Jesus, it's not about condemnation. It's about what I would miss out on. Jesus. All of that is true enough, of course. But there is a truth that runs deeper still. I understand. I sympathize with it. Whatever the temptation is. And it is finished. On a far deeper level than you can now fathom. Me. And that can be my strength, can't it? If you have gone before me and passed an even greater test than I have, you have made so much available to me even now. Jesus, more than you know, even on your best day. Not profound. It's simple. Back and forth. It just helps me to see what God might be saying to me in the passage. And I invite you to try this too. And in case you're wondering, I didn't make this up. It comes from St. Ignatius. This is an exercise that he will direct us in sometimes, is to do that. So I invite you to try it. Read a passage, sit in prayerful silence, and begin the dialogue on paper or on your computer. 
whatever works best. Dallas Willard once said that while we often talk about the cost of discipleship, which is very important, we should also consider the cost of non-discipleship. And if you're thinking, he's quoted this before, I have, and I will again. Willard says, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life on the highest plane. If you were to evaluate your life today, is it all you hope for? Or do you long for something more, something deeper, something more hopeful, something more energizing? As Willard puts it, would, wouldn't you like to live life as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities on the highest plane possible, or at least begin to move in that direction? If so, let us dwell together in the house of the Lord every day. Let us, as individual followers of Jesus, learn in some way to dwell. As he said last week, to delight in, to meditate on the word of God, to dwell, to ask questions, to converse with God, even to doubt if that's what you're dealing with. Let us learn to dwell in the house of the Lord together. Let us pursue the one thing we most need and want. Let us sit with Jesus Let us listen to him. Let us ask questions, debate, doubt, and wrestle with all authenticity and honesty, knowing that this God loves us. And we can bring absolutely anything we have to say, any question we have to ask, any doubt we are struggling, we can bring it to him in prayer and in conversation. For this, too, is what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord. Would you join me in a moment of silence as we close? God, we invite you now by your Spirit to come and speak and move in our midst. Speak to us what we need to hear. Encourage us, we pray. Help us to receive what you might say to us. God, we thank you that you are present with us, that you are always present. And I pray for each person who is present here online or watching or listening later, that they too would be made aware of your presence, of your love, of your commitment to each of us. 
And I pray that in this knowledge of your love and presence, in this awareness, God, you would help us to voice what we need to voice, to ask the tough questions, to push back, even to doubt, to wrestle with you, God, and to trust that you desire to speak to us. Help us, Lord God, to to listen and to hear what you want to say to us in prayer, in our spirits, in conversation with sisters and brothers, in sermons and Bible studies and classes, in devotionals and books, however you want to speak, God, help us to listen and to know that we have been spoken to by you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.